Making sense in a world of nonsense. Okay, quite a bold start. <laughs> but many are feeling, like myself, that there is a widening gulf between the media narratives that we see on a daily basis and the underlying reality that uh, they purport to represent. Accordingly, trust in traditional media is eroding, but with such a vast ecosystem of alternative media outlets and the increasing cancer culture and censorship, how then can we possibly make sense of reality under these conditions? To explore how we can make better sense of the world, we are joined today by Alexander Biner, who in 2018 co-founded Rebel Wisdom, an alternative media and events platform that grew to over a quarter of a million subscribers and became an influential node in the systems change, personal growth, and sense-making communities. He's one of the executive directors of Breaking Convention and the author of the upcoming book, The Bigger Picture, How Psychedelics Can Help Us Make Sense of the World. His work explores how psychedelics can be used to elicit sustainable cultural change, the complexities of psychedelic capitalism and uh, for psychedelics becoming mainstream. He also looks at differing beliefs and value systems that affect psychedelic culture. However, we're not here to talk about psychedelics today. In this episode, we're here to talk about sense-making, uh, starting with what is sense-making and why learning how to deepen our sense-making is more important now than ever before, why sense-making is so much more than just critical thinking, how grand narratives, loss of trust in institutions, algorithms, and differences in value systems are creating a crisis of sense-making, and how the emergence of ideologies have become a barrier to understanding reality and how changes in our culture have led to a war on truth. We'll also explore the importance of shared sense-making, coming to an understanding of the world together and developing a set of practices to deepen our own individual uh, ability to better understand an ever-complex world around us. We'll also explain the details of the final Sense-Making 101 course. I had the great privilege of taking part in the Rebel Wisdom Sense-Making course not so long ago. And as Rebel Wisdom are coming to an end, this is the final opportunity to take part in their seven-week course hosted by Ali and David. You'll receive tuition from leading thinkers, cognitive scientists, philosophers, and mediators. It's designed to give you the skills you need to improve how to make sense of culture, media, and be able to see the bigger picture. Throughout the course, you have the opportunity to learn easy-to-apply skills to improve your mental flexibility, your discernment, your self-awareness, working in small groups to put what you learn into practice as you're learning. I had a fascinating experience. You'll hear in this episode today of some of the breakthroughs that I had within the course. This is your final opportunity to take part in the course, and we've arranged a special discount for our Elevate audience. Uh, you can use the discount code ELEVATE10, ELEVATE underscore 10, with a capital E at rebelwisdom.co.uk forward slash sensemaking101 to sign up for the course, which is taking uh, place from Wednesday, the 14th of September, 2022. So take your opportunity to uh, check out the course. It's your last opportunity to join the Rebel Wisdom Sensemaking 101 course. And you can also join us on Monday this week inside the Elevate Network, where we have a special event where you have the opportunity for a taster session for some of the sense-making uh, tools and practices that you'll be able to learn on the course. So you can join us on Monday night at 8 p.m. with Ali uh, at danastongregory.com forward slash sense-making. That's danastongregory.com forward slash sense-making to join us for a one-off 
uh, taster session ahead of the course that begins on Wednesday. Ali, welcome to the Elevate podcast. Great to have you here to talk about sense making, a subject that's dear to my heart. Uh, looking forward to a, a, a really important conversation with you today. Thanks, Dan. Yeah, it's good, good to be here. And uh, yeah, looking forward to this. Now, now sense making, um, let's go right off the bat by giving a kind of definition of what this means. I think many right now, particularly those probably watching this podcast, are in, in a realm where they're trying to make sense of the world, they're applying critical thinking, they're evaluating different sources, and many often associate sense making simply with critical thinking. But is is sense making itself much broader than this? What's what's your kind of definition of sense making? Yes, yeah, so that's a really good question. Like what what is sense making, and and actually why use a different word than sort of critical thinking? So sense making definitely includes critical thinking. That's certainly a part of it. Um, and actually, the, the term sense making kind of originated in large, large part from kind of business strategy. So it came from how do you look at a complex situation, figure out what's going on, and take meaningful action. And so there's there's actually a model we use in sense making 101 called the OODA loop, which is probably a good expression of that. So this actually comes from from the military as well. It's uh, OODA is O O D A. So it's um, orient so what's going on around me where am i figure out okay in all the chaos and complexity where am i positioned what can i see and that's the next bit observe and then um decide what i'm going to do and then act and then you do the whole process again because the point is that in a complex environment whether that's online trying to figure out what exactly is going on with a particular topic um whether that's around vaccines or the invasion of ukraine or whatever it else might be we have to be in this constant process of, it's a constant fluid process of, of figuring things out. It's very flexible. So flexibility is a big part of it. And then the other difference between sense-making and critical thinking is also that we, um, it, the, the, the clue is in the word sense. Um, it's the senses, it's coming to our senses, it's waking up to really the only way we can perceive anything and do perceive anything, which is through our lived sensory experience. And that's why um, it involves processes or practices like mindfulness, which is really waking up to our senses, being able to, to pay attention to our lived experience without necessarily reacting to it or overlaying a narrative onto it. That's really essential. Also being, a, being um, cognitive flexibility is a really key term as well. So this is, this is your, and sometimes it's called um, mental flexibility or psychological flexibility, depending on what field it's in. But this is your ability to be fluid in your thinking. And it's absolutely key. Um, it's actually, you know, low cognitive flexibility, for example, is associated with high rates of depression. High cognitive flexibility is also associated with um, better recovery rates from traumatic events. So it's a really important skill. It's also really important for figuring out what's going on. Um, and then this is the kind of the third and, and, and final part of, you know, what is sense making. I think a huge part of it is also, um, and this is borrowing language from uh, John Verveke, who's a professor of cognitive science, University of Toronto. It's about breaking your frame on reality and making new frames. So if you imagine that the way that you are perceiving the world and any given idea or situation or... Um, political policy, anything is 
through a particular frame of what's possible and what's not possible, what's what's good and what's bad. And so practices like dialogue where we kind of or like inquiry, which we practice on the course um, and is a big practice for me personally. Uh, uh, it, that's a kind of a talking meditation, this, this kind of process of coming together and having a conversation where we're not trying to convince each other of something, but we're actually starting from the place of I don't know. Hmm. I'm really curious about this and i'm i'm starting like we do with a scientific inquiry from a position of not knowing i have a, maybe i have a hypothesis i maybe have a few threads of hypothesis but then then we kind of come to truth um the truth of our experience together um that process is a process of of breaking your old frame and then putting on a new one so it's like taking your glasses off um and uh observing them and going ah okay um, that's, that's skewed, that's smudged, cleaning them a little bit, putting them back on new frame, but you don't just do it once you do it all the time because you don't ever just have the magic frame that just, um, gives you, gives you everything you need. M maybe in peak moments of mystical experience, people have a, a moment of big reframing, but you always have to come back and integrate that into your life. Um, and it's the process of breaking your frame on the way you see the world and making a new one delicate process because you can also put on a frame that's narrower and gives you less insight into something you know if you if your if your frame becomes um well everything that's wrong in the world can be explained by social justice theory or everything that's wrong can be explained by capitalism or can be explained by x y or z you're narrowing your frame so that you're so anything outside of the frame that contradicts it just doesn't fit into the way you see the world so the so the most important aspect of sense making is the ability to widen frames and to be able to be flexible with, and ideally I call it flipping, um, picking up a new set of glasses and being able to wear that and go, oh, okay, this is a, this is a framework of someone who's really into Marxist theory and this is how they see. And I can see and feel what they feel if I look through this lens. Now I don't need to adopt that lens. I have my own lens. But uh, a bit like when you go to the optician and they go, they, they, when they're trying to actually see what your eyesight is, they have this kind of like crazy contraption and they, they like layer lenses onto each other. And it's like better, worse, better, worse. It's a bit like that. So you want to have as many of those different um, frames and lenses as possible without being overly attached to any particular one. So that means we're more that, you know, that helps us to thrive. It helps us to feel much more connected to the world, it helps us see more of the world. And it's also something we're not really taught in school ever. You know, it's, 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 that's why that's why we have to learn it usually as adults. Um, it'd be fantastic to teach uh, good sense making in schools. I'm sure some schools do, but um, it's really about learning how to think rather than than what to think. So yeah, mm, very important I, for me personally. When I was on the sense making course, the frames piece was such a big breakthrough for me, amongst amongst several other things that I'll touch upon, but. It, it, it almost accelerated my path along the, the, the Dunning-Kruger curve, where at one point, you know, I thought, okay, I've got a good domain expertise in this particular area. I've been studying it now for two years. I've, you know, had shared sense-making experience, experiences on a grand scale. But then looking, I realized the limitation of my lenses, and it took me right to that place of, okay, it's far more complicated than I ever possibly imagined and it was only by taking that approach of actually looking outside of my existing frames that I'd essentially reinforced through my own biases my own um, group think if you will that took me outside of that frame now it doesn't mean that 
it altered some of the views that I had within the frame, as you said, but it, it enhanced my perspectives and it brought me back to a place of empathy, really, where you know, I, I recall, you know, Stephen Covey's words of, you know, seek first to understand before being understood. And it more, more so, it even helped me with my communication with others, because a lot of people for the last couple of years, that have, particularly around the COVID narratives, have fallen out with loved ones, friends. And, and often, you know, we're trying to sell our ideas rather than actually listen and, and heed what uh, other people are thinking and feeling. So that lenses exercise was a really powerful one, but also taking it out of the mind and into the body that uh, uh, the, the, the mindfulness and actually sensing our physicality, because, you know, if we're in a state of overwhelm, uh, it's a, it creates physical ramifications. And as such, we don't perform at our best. Our cognitive function doesn't perform at our best. And if we're trying to make sense of the world from a lower state of physiology, then certainly my experience of doing so is, it's produced flaws in my thinking and flaws in my decisions or inability to make decisions or leading to procrastination in those, in those uh, physical and emotional states. So it really took me myself personally. I'm glad you answered the question the way they did, because historically I was one of those people who really thought it was just as critical thinking. Um, but all those things you've just shared actually help the process of critical thinking as, as well as bring different dynamics uh, of their own. That's really nicely said. I mean, there's just a, a few things on there I'd love to pick up on. I mean, one important point is that every, all of us, if you are a human being with a human brain, we're all in some kind of reality tunnel, right? At, at all times, you know? So, so um, one of my, one of the things I've learned um, hosting the, the course for the last two, three years is, um, it comes from John Braveke, um, who talks about, um, uh, well, firstly, he's, he's got a few different things I love, which is uh, looking to your senses rather than looking through your senses. So that point you just made around this kind of embodied process that we get into, it's it's so it's really rich because in the one sense, when we're really angry, we are really feeling our body and we're like pumped up, but we're not able to take a step back and observe the fact that we're angry and notice how that's changing our sense making because whatever state you're in is changing how you make sense of the world. So if you're really hungry, you will read a news article differently than if you're not. You know, you might be more like uh, us and them about it. You might be more pissed off about it. Um, if you're really relaxed and open, you've had a really lovely holiday, you might be more receptive to different ideas outside of, outside of your frame, right? So we're all in this kind of continuous, within a usually a spectrum of, you know, difference. But we're in a kind of continuous state of flowing. So it's really helpful to be able to take a step back and notice, like in a conversation, we could, you know, it's very different and we go, sorry, I notice I'm feeling really defensive about how you're talking about um, Tiananmen Square. <laughs> That's not me, personally, but it's my head. And I'm really curious about why, why that might be. I don't know if you're also feeling um, a little bit charged up at the moment. That immediately takes us away from the content and being completely like sucked into it to zooming out a little bit and, and looking at it now at the same time you can't stay you can't kind of bypass the reality of a situation by just zoom out so far it's like oh i'm never gonna come to a firm conclusion or agree on anything so it's this kind of dance between the two of them again this um the importance of, of flexibility is something i've really noticed and the other thing that i think is so valuable about verveke's work is that his work is based on this concept of relevance realization and the idea is that 
what makes you intelligent, makes us all intelligent as human beings, is our ability to figure out what's relevant to us from all the things that are salient in our environment. So salient is like calling out for your attention. So without that ability, you're just sort of like blindly wandering through. Imagine you're in a forest and there's birds and there's, you know, birds singing, there's wind, the trees are creaking. You're just like completely <laughs> like it's all relevant to me. Right. Um, but if you are um, going through the forest because you're trying to find a water source, you have you're able to tune out all of that. And maybe what you're focusing on is the smell of water or, or clues in the landscape of, you know, like, you know, terrain, for example. So that means, um, so his argument is that all intelligence is biased because that is bias. You are biased towards thinking the water source is important. The birds right now aren't important. Now, if you're a bird watcher, completely different relevance at salience, like a uh, really different relevance realization with the same, what you'd call a salience landscape. There's the same information. And so we get that online as well all the time. It's like five of us going online to look at the same topic, will choose different relevant information. And that's partly, and Viveki's talked about this before, that's partly why it doesn't really work to argue on facts. It's like, yeah, but look at this stat. Oh yeah, okay, but I've got this stat. Because we're not actually agreeing on, we don't have a shared sense of what's relevant. We're looking at completely mm -hmm. different things. It's like it's like the, the bird watcher telling the guy looking for water, look at this bird. And he's like, mate, not interested in birds. You know, so that's a really important, um, that's a really important uh, insight, I think, to, to consider with sense making. Mm, I, I mean, I, there's a few things I'd like to draw on before I progress from here, because in the context of what you've just shared, plus in the kind of example of frames, one of the things that I've been curious about over the last couple of years is the nature of debate um, when it comes to shared sense making as, a, as an idea. And when you have one individual that is debating on facts or figures, logic, and then you have another individual that is perhaps debating on a narrative or an ideology or a dogma, they, they, they are rarely going to come to a place of agreement when they're coming from different, not only different places cognitively, but they're actually taking a different style of debate. You know, it's, mm. someone said to me on the podcast a couple of years ago that, you know, in order to have a successful debate, you need to define the terms of debate and you're either going to debate on ideologies or you're going to debate on facts so that you've, you, you've got a level playing field in order to be able to discuss the issues at hand. What are your take when it comes to sense making in that particular challenge? Yeah, it's a it's a good one. Um, <clears throat> so on the one hand, I think it's the one useful way I found with thinking about something like this is looking at what what level of analysis we're looking at. I mean, we've had a few people on, on rebelism talking about that in various ways. Um, and I've become particularly curious about, about that. So one level, so, okay, let's say we are talking about ideological uh, perspective. What's an ideological perspective? It's a perspective around a hierarchy of values in one way. What's most important? Maybe it's individual freedom for a libertarian, or maybe it's collective safety for, um, for, you know, particular kind of uh, communism. So it'll be different for everyone, right? And so the the question of are we are we clear that we're talking at the level of values, and if so, what are the different values at play here? In fact, my friend Peter Lindbergh um, wrote a really influential piece some years ago uh, called "The Mimetic Tribes," 
um, uh, of the culture wars. Um, uh, that might have been not have been the exact title. I can't actually remember now, even though I've referenced it so many times. But the idea of mimetic tribes is the idea that we don't just really have left and right anymore. We we do, but we also have, perhaps more importantly, many different uh, ideological tribes, each of whom have different value systems, and that's where a lot of the battle lies. And so you know, which is you know, during COVID, it was one interesting thing is that you saw people who might traditionally be on the right and people who were traditionally um, more sort of spiritual, new age, uh, you know, interested in yoga, coming to similar conclusions based on a shared value set, you know? And so it didn't really matter that they probably would have voted very differently in the last election. There's an agreement on a shared value around personal liberty, body sovereignty, um, the nature of authoritarian control and why that should be resisted. So those value systems are really, really important. Um, I'm, you know, and the other question of arguing about uh, facts, that is, that kind of, um, I just see, I don't really see that happening usually online, say. I think it happens somewhat in like peer review in scientific papers. And even then, it's pretty ideological. <laughs> you know, yeah, it's, yeah. I really don't know. I, if you know where it might happen, actually, is in like mathematics and physics departments more more than anywhere else. In the STEM subjects, I think there's much more of that because that's what they're doing. That's that's the nature of the game. Anything else becomes much more a question of uh, competing value systems and and desires and and status and and all the the very human things. So I think first acknowledging that we're all doing that. Uh, it clarifies clarifies a lot um doesn't necessarily mean we do agree with each other but at least it it helps open the conversation up a little bit the other thing the other concept i think is really uh useful is the idea of value capture which is um one i've been exploring a lot recently and and kind of using the work of um philosopher called ct Ingwen, uh, and I probably mispronounced his last name, but uh, I, maybe you could put it in the in the show notes somewhere. It's really worth checking out. He's um, he's written about the philosophy of games, um, and uh, in his view, uh, every art form it captures a different sense. So painting is about you know the sense of sight. Music is obviously the sense of sound, and games are um, agency. That's how we experiment with agency. So your ability to move and act in the world, and so. Normally, we have huge amount of, it's really complex to be a human being in the world. There's a lot of choices you have to make about what you're going to do, how you're going to exercise your, your will and agency in the world. And there's a lot of demand on what your values are. You know, you have these ethical conundrums, should I do X or Y? In a game, you're told exactly what your values are. You're a, you're a small, fat plumber, and you're, <laughs> the thing you most about in the world is rescuing a princess, and you don't like dinosaurs, so you kill them. And you're like, great, Oof, thank God. Okay, that's, I'm going to collect more. Like, oh, amazing. And so, so then kind of small examples, other examples, you know, I play a lot of video games. So it's like, there's a lot of complexity in games because sometimes you're given real ethical choices, real ethical conundrums. Um, the, the game, The Last of Us, which they're now making an HBO show out of, probably has, without spoiling it, probably has the best ending of any TV show or game I've ever seen because of this, this nature of the level of like choice and like, um, God, you know, sticks with you for days. You're like, you know, the, the choice you make or the choices you don't make. So that is really interesting. You know, if you think about games in terms of agency, 
and then he goes on to argue that social media is a game effectively because the so Twitter tells you, okay, you might come to Twitter with your own values. I want to have a really heart, heartful, generative conversation about political ideas. And Twitter's like, well, that's not our values. Our values are <laughs> <laughs> likes and retweets and follower count. And the way you increase those things is not the same as the way you have those kind of deep, generative, complex conversations. And in fact, you can't do both at the same time because the way you increase your follower count, retweets and likes is by saying things that your existing audience likes or saying something that's so outrageous somebody else that it gets attention. So what you get is sort of like confirmation bias and outrage kind of, and that's how you gain status and that's how you win that game. The fact that that game is so closely linked to our, and not just Twitter, also the fact that those are so closely linked to are the way we come a, come to truth together and find information is um, hugely problematic. Um, a massive, massive issue that a lot of people that we've had in Rebel Wisdom, like Tristan Harris, who used to be a Google ethicist, and uh, Daniel Schmachtenberger and Jamie Wheel, but many other people have have talked about um, at length. So that's that's worth checking out if people want to really deep dive into that. But I think finally on that point, what's what's important to, to to the question you raised is to recognize where our values are being captured because we might be having an argument at work about something uh let's say a shipment of something that didn't arrive on time whatever it might be we might be having an argument that is an argument defending or on behalf of the values of the company or the organization we're in that might not be our values because we might not care at all <laughs> <laughs> Well, I care if a bunch of shipment didn't come in. Like my values might be completely different. You might care as well. I mean, it could it could align with your values, in which case, you know, great. But very often the values of an institution don't align with our individual values, um, which tend to be much more. Well, I mean, it's it's too much of a blanket statement, I think. But but very often people feel like they have a desire for something deeper, a deeper level of human connection than an institution will allow for so that's also you know if we zoom out we also have to look at the systems that we're part of influencing our values and and the way we talk about our values so that's uh and in a way that that brings sense making out of the individual or even out of just you and me in the second person that brings it into the third person of the third person perspective being the it like where are we what what kind of world are we in what kind of environment are we in what's the media saying what are the social networks doing Mm, yeah, I think that's such an important piece to recognize around the way that we interact on social media. I remember I, I, in my early 20s, I was traveling Europe and I met someone from the US who was a student at the time. And she asked me if I heard of Facebook yet. I was like, no, <laughs> this is like pre-Facebook. And she showed me on the screen what it was. I was like, oh, this is going to be fascinating. And, th and then when I first downloaded it, I think there was a very brief time in history where it would chronologically show you the posts of the people you're connected to. And I may be wrong on that point, but I think there is still almost a latent belief that, you know, social media is showing you <laughs> the things in order of what your friends and family and connections are sharing, but it's, it's very much not. The algorithm is not wired to do that. It's, it's doing exactly as you've described, in which case, it, it, it is it is it is meeting its own needs and values as 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 you've described. But I think the values point is so important because I think we we, we under underplay that. I think there's a couple of things that stand out for me. 
really it wasn't until I went through a conscious process 10 years ago in 2012 that I became self-aware of my own personal values to the point where I could articulate them, write them down, but not just be aware of my personal values, be aware of how I'm living them and, and almost like a hierarchy of values. So what's, what's most important to me and something that's maybe of a lesser of importance. But what it showed me is, is how, how certain relationships are stronger when there is a, a values alignment uh, or, or certain things become easier and I always remember hearing the example of trying to book a holiday with your loved one. If your primary value is freedom and an adventure and your partner's value is safety and security, you know, you might want to go um, bungee jumping, you, you know, climbing, hiking, whereas your partner, if their value is safety and security, that's probably the last thing they're going to want to do. They, I mean, they may break that value. They may still have adventure and freedom, et cetera, in, in the hierarchy of values, but that value disconnect means that they're, their life's experience and the lenses they see the world are going to be vastly different. But we don't consciously, when we enter into a debate on Twitter, stop to think, oh, I wonder what that person's values are. Although we, we probably can, if you step back and start to imagine putting on a different set of lenses, you probably can start to see what some of their values could be. But I think it's such an important process when it comes to our own sense making, but also when, it, when we extend that to discussion and debate. Um, because it helps to understand the context much more broadly. Yeah, I, I, you know, it's it's such an interesting question. You could maybe zoom out on Twitter and figure out what someone's values are, but it'll also be quite difficult just because of, the, and this is another point, um, I, I uh, interviewed and put out a, a piece on Substack with um, a woman called Catherine D, who's a works in technology, but she's sort of a... Um, uh, I would say she's an internet sociologist and she didn't complain when I called her that. So I, I think it's probably safe <laughs> to say. Um, and, you know, she said, she said, it's really obvious, but it bears repeating in terms of the internet. The thing that most people get wrong or most commentators is that the medium is the message. So the fact that you, you can only do a certain amount of characters on Twitter or the fact that Instagram is image focused changes the conversation like it is the conversation the conversation becomes about short short punchy takes that's the conversation so it's quite difficult in that for example to um to actually discern values and you get people you know people are forced to do like a big twitter thread if they want to <laughs> go into any kind of depth and it's like because yeah like you kind of pointed to values are a it's quite difficult to tap into what are our values it's quite a different you know, one of the best ways to stump someone, which I've noticed uh, in myself, and I've noticed it um, facilitating retreats, is just asking someone, "What do you What do you want?" <laughs> it's like yes. uh, it's really like, <laughs> yes. it's a yeah. you know, for many of us, it's a real process of getting very clear and then feeling confident enough to really declare what we want because there's there's a lot of uh, baggage around it there's a lot you know because we might not get what we want and therefore then we ha then we have to figure out well, what am i going to do if i don't get what i want how far am i willing to get this is just that's just one aspect of it right what if somebody else wants something different like in the example you gave about the holiday it's like it require then it kind of goes into the necessity which is another really core aspect of sense making of how we make sense together like how do we arrive at um enough of a shared sense of relevance around a particular topic and it doesn't have to be that we agree on the topic and nor should it necessarily it's not about um kind of kumbaya we're all gonna discuss um global capitalism and then we're all going to agree at the end of it it's not it's it's much more 
we're at least going to have a sense of shared relevance. And that's partly why coming to the human level of lived experience of our emotional reality, as well as the ideas level is essential because that is our shared experience. Whatever else is going on, our shared experience is always our shared humanity. And, and that's, the, that's the baseline. And so if we start from a point of shared humanity, then we get to a really different place in the conversation. And in fact, the differences in ideology and the differences in values become less important because there's an underlying um, foundation of um, a lived human experience, which, which we're basing it on. And, and that's, really, um, that's really the point of making sense together, uh, as well as tapping into um, a sort of hive mind. Like, we, you know, we can't figure everything out by ourselves. It's not possible. It's not, um, it's not how human beings work. It's not how we've made culture. It's not how, you know, it's just not how it does, how we do it. We do it in a process of um, exchange of ideas, testing ideas, testing opinions, getting reflection. It's, it's a, and also the fact that we have different skill sets, abilities, and insights. So the kind of multi, we get, you know, to have a sort of, variety of perspectives and a variety of skills allows us to tap into a distributed cognition which is um also in, in cognitive science um recognized by by most as just part of how human beings think you can't really separate yourself out from the culture as a whole your society as a whole the world as a whole like what we think is we're, we're taking existing ideas and then we're making them our own and then we're putting them back out. And then the, then the whole kind of distributed cognition of all the people is, is doing that in the, constantly, constantly. And sometimes from that complex system, we get emergence, which is something new, something new that's more than the sum of its parts comes out. And that's really um, the most magical um, experience when we're making sense in a group together is this sort of moment of through the process, like in an ant colony, it's the it's the individual ants interacting with each other that create a hive mind, a group intelligence. The individual ants aren't intelligent at all. Now we are intelligent, and so when we um, so when we interact, we do the same that happens with the ant hive. We create a kind of shared collective intelligence, but also we're able as individuals to reflect on. Oh wow, do you notice what's happening in this conversation? I think we just tapped into something. And I'm really and you feel it very often in your body. You feel it like a I think we've just tapped into a really interesting idea or a really interesting synthesis or a really interesting thread of inquiry. And then everyone gets excited around it. And so that's the idea of kind of shared sense making. It's, it's um, we're not necessarily trying to solve a problem, although you can use it for that. But generally, it's much more about navigating complexity uh, because we can't a lot of complex problems can't be solved with um complicated solutions which is a whole other big topic which we, we can maybe cover but it's a <laughs> yeah yes uh, well I'll, I'll come back to that point but but you're absolutely there's a couple of things so, so my experience on the sense making course so there was a fantastic uh breakout discussion that i had and i happened to be in a room with someone who was from the west coast of the us someone from eastern europe and someone from china who originally originally from china they'd spent quite a bit of time in china now such and, and me from southwest England <laughs> yeah um and we had such different cultural backgrounds um such in our histories but also in our present moment and because of the container that the course created we were examining a specific topic I think at the time it was 
probably COVID. And it was fascinating to see the different analysis of the same subject matter from the different kind of cultural lenses. And because of the, the way that the course had been set up, we'd, we'd, we'd very quickly picked up on that cultural layer and the, and the lenses. And we were both discussing the subject matter, but also zooming out and saying, how is our, how, how, how is our cultural norms affecting how we're seeing the subject? And it was a really powerful, powerful conversation. But what enabled that to happen was the container that was created by the course itself and, and, the, and the workshop and, and, the, and the breakout room. Now, your point, and I love the point, but it, to me, it feels a bit like a lovely ideal that humanity has this shared sense-making ability, which we certainly do. My question is then, <laughs> in the current culture, why are we so polarized, divided, and why, why are we so reluctant and there's, you know, and, and there's certain, the amount of times that I hear people say, but we know that we are right, or I know that I am right. And that's just like, even if I agree with their analysis on a particular thing, the door is shut, the, bait, the book is closed. And there, therefore that shared sense-making has a number of barriers before it can even begin. Definitely. That's a massive question. I mean, so it's like, <laughs> it, but I, I like massive in a really good way in that I think that's probably the most important question in the world right now in a lot of ways um, it's, the, it's the question that we've been exploring on rebel wisdom for since the beginning um i'll try and give my perspective on it as concisely as possible because it's like a whole massive topic but um i've just written a um uh well written yeah i've just handed into the publisher a book that's coming out next year called the bigger picture which is um, uh, about how psychedelics can help us make sense of the world. And part of it, is, one, one of the chapters, it's called the big crisis. And um, that's my word for what some people call the meta crisis, which is um, all of the many overlapping crises that we face civilizationally right now that are all kind of happening at the same time and kind of converging in one moment. And so part of why we can't agree with each other. I think there's a lot of different factors and then there'll be many more that I'm not aware of. And, you know, it's, it's really, again, the difference between a complicated problem and a complex problem because it's constantly changing and everything is interacting with everything else. But people like um, Jonathan Haidt and many others have put a lot of the blame at social media, the way that social media is designed through its algorithms to um, uh, keep us on the platform by by promoting outrage and also keep us in our own reality bubbles by filling our feed with just people we agree with. So that's one element. And I think that's a pretty important element. I think deeper than that, there is a crisis of trust in institutions. That's a major one because, and a really useful framing for this is the work of Joseph Henrik, who's a evolutionary psychologist at Harvard. Um, I have an interview with him on Rebel Wisdom as well. If anyone wants to uh, check out his work, really highly recommend it. He has a, um, and I'm speaking from, okay, yeah, so from Western perspective, basically he popularized a term called weird, which is Western, educated, industrialized, rich and democratic, which is us and probably a lot of the people uh, watching and listening right now. Um, and the insight that they had was that weird people so they realized that a lot of psychology papers were based on undergraduates in western countries uh or in sort of educated the educated elite of different countries all of whom kind of th think quite similarly and 
so he has a book called the weirdest people in the world where he tracks how this all evolved which i won't get into in too much detail but basically the argument is that in the west we're the outliers globally we think differently and we are kind of hyper individualist we're very concerned with internal states um so we're, we're interested in what that person really feels or really thinks um and another aspect of us is that because we're so individualist we outsource our trust to institutions much more than other cultures. In a lot of other cultures, you're within a, a network of um, obligation and different family relationships. And so you don't have, you, you know that if you're connected to someone within that network, there are consequences for them doing something bad because their reputation will be damaged. There, there tends to be more focus on shame, which kind of carries through families. It doesn't just affect you, it affects someone else. Our cult, weird cultures are more associated with guilt, which is like the difference being that if you don't go to the gym one day when you were going to, you might feel guilty, but you don't feel shame. Because if your neighbor found out, you wouldn't be like, oh God, the unbearable shame of it. My family is now going to be stigmatized and ostracized, it's different, right? It's much more individualist. The key, the reason I'm bringing this up and the, really the key point of this is that, so when I read Henrik's work uh, and then talked to him about it, uh, he kind of confirmed this. It was like, I was like, basically our, our trust in institutions in the West is not a nice to have thing that, that, that keeps the social fabric together. It's definitely that. It's way deeper than that. If we can't trust our institutions, we can't trust and we have this kind of sense of psychological anxiety, which is catastrophic. Like, so the options are either we learn how to trust our institutions or make new institutions that we can trust, or we become completely different people culturally, which is a huge tall order. That's why I'm more in the camp of reform the institutions um, and, and, trans and, and yeah, transform them, transform the foundation, foundational value structure of society because I don't think you, you don't change thousands of years of culture overnight, it doesn't work. Um, so that's, that's my view on that. But coming back to the question, we have a crisis, we have the crisis, the environmental crisis, we have a crisis of trust in our institutions, we have a crisis of meaning as well. And John Dravecki kind of really um, pioneered the term, the meaning crisis, a crisis of who we are as, as human beings. Like, you know, we have, scientific materialism has effectively told us that we are um uh consciousness doesn't really exist we're just kind of blips in the cosmics a cosmic little blue blue and green speck in the void that means nothing nothing means anything because the, the universe is a dead machine that is a unique idea that's come about in the last 400 years and is i think the foundation and the core of of the big crisis that understanding of ourselves in the world because the the options are nihilism or narcissism mm. both of which are really prevalent online uh, you know yes. the reddit nihilism r slash uh, nihilism grew from about five, i think it was something like six or seven thousand people before covid to like, you know, 150,000 or something like that after COVID, right? It's, it's, so you can, I'm not sure the exact numbers, but you can, um, people can check it out. A huge rise, right? Massive rise. Narcissism online, I don't think we need any stats for because it's, <laughs> just go on Instagram. Um, it, it because, you know, and it could be that the social networks incentivize the narcissism more than is already there. 
But, I, you know, Verveke argues, and I, I've argued as well in, in, in kind of from a different angle, that the response to the meaning crisis is one of those two things. So, you, what you know, basically, if nothing means anything and human beings are just blips, and yet the only place you can find meaning is, is in yourself somehow, like, you know, you have to actualize yourself. But what, mm. you know, Verveke puts this out really well. It's like, what, what are you actually actualizing if you don't really matter or exist? It's a complete yeah. farce, right? So instead it becomes, well, buy, buy stuff. Buy stuff and have a kind of um, empty consumerism that stands in the place of, of religion, the, 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 you know, the God-shaped hole. So, um, but it's not just a God-shaped hole. It's a, it's a meaning-shaped hole. It's what's worth living for. You know, and that hole gets filled with ideology. And so I think that's why partly why the ferocity of, of arguments online are, are is so intense, because we're not arguing about um, an idea that we can take it or leave it. We're arguing about literally our souls in a way. It's like if if libertarianism isn't correct, I don't know what I mean anymore. Or if intersectionality isn't right. I don't know what the point of anything is anymore. So that is also a terrible situation because in my view, there's no replacement for the sacred. There's no replacement for a deep connection to an underlying sense of reality that is beyond our own egos. And that's the thing that's missing in, in, in Western culture, something that is bigger than the culture itself. Otherwise you get what Verbrecki calls cultural narcissism. And you also get this complete stripping out of anything meaningful or beautiful beyond the profit uh, motivation. And I think that's what a lot of us are reacting to. And we all, just like we all grieve differently, we all grieve, well, I mean, it is grief. We all grieve that loss very differently. Some of, you know, some of us get angry, some of us get despondent, but I think it's all the same loss. And so the, you know, that's why I'm, you know, I'm very much focused on what does it mean to, reconnect to the sacred and what does it mean because the sacred is underneath the values you know the values to to follow on from what we talked about earlier we have our values that are different but where do we get the values from the values come from the very deepest level of what it means to be a human being and what is and i think a good way to touch on that is what would you die for and you know maybe in at some point uh we would have died for king and country and nationalism was kind of good enough we live in a very different world now um that's not that that kind of the, the sacredness of that is not something we connect to um and so we have this big void and and that's uh, yeah so i think we're trying to fill that void mm. I, i'm that distinction i i can see aligning very closely with the kind of tribalist nature that we're working within right now is that i mean and I, I think you guys did an episode on the kind of religious nature of covid but it's like the religious nature of covid the religious nature of climate the religious nature of anything right now it's 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 almost showing up in this 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 almost dogmatic ideological fashion um where i think it is that god shaped hole the absence of the sacred but instead you know we what do we die for Pe people will die to defend their own self identification whether that's a particular political position whether it's a particular view on something as simple as vaccines it's 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 so intense that we that the intensity by which people hold on to this identification is so so uh uh it's so so intense that it, it it creates that kind of yeah religious like experience um 
And what I'm curious about, I said it to you when we met in London, is I, the, 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 I would be very curious to know what Alan Watts or Ram Dass would say about these things, because they're very, the sense of self, the sense of identity, the egoic mind um, is so powerful, I think, in today's modern age. But And this probably links into another point that I'd like to discuss around this kind of postmodern subjectivism that leads to this kind of everything being a social construct, everything is malleable and fluid and I think a lot of this also plays into that sense of identification uh, that, that, that is so rich and prevalent right now and, and within all of that I see that whole I see the, the meaning crisis playing out and as a result I think that is something that is reinforcing the divides amongst us um, because there is no truth in a post-truth world therefore mm-hmm. What are we holding on to? Um, and we're fighting amongst ourselves about things that we can't agree upon, but we can't even necessarily verify as observable reality. Yeah. What, what's your, what's your, I mean, I, that was just, a, I didn't even ask a question there, but I'd just be interested in your comments. No, no, just... no, I totally get it. Yeah, this is, uh, I think it's a really important aspect of, of uh, particularly the meaning crisis, but also, I guess, the, the trust crisis as well. And um, yeah, but, and so, Postmodernity, postmodernism, it's it's useful to sort of um, it gets a lot of flack, particularly from the right. Um, although there's now a postmodern right, which I'll talk about in a bit, which I find <laughs> a fascinating development. Um, so post postmodernism, I firstly I agree with you in the sense of um, if you deconstruct how we make truth ad infinitum, so you just keep doing it, and everything is self, everything is a narrative game, there's no real truth, everything is just my perspective, your perspective, what you end up with is what what Ken Wilber calls an aperspectival madness, there's no ground to stand on, everything is just, it's a craziness, it's crazy, which is what we're experiencing in large part among the middle classes and, and elite in the West, that's a really important point that I think uh, people like Mary Harrington have made uh, and NS Lyons, who's a really great uh, writer as well. There's this sort of um, retreat into these realms of theory, which are kind of fantasy realms where everything can be true. And if you theorize something, um, that's reality because on the internet, it kind of is true. It's like, well, I can be whoever I want. I'm an avatar I'm this, I'm that. So there's that element of it. Um, But Postmodernism also brought a really important, um, const- a really important view, of, and it was a really important developmental process, which is that the big narratives and the big stories that we live by, handed down by religions and governments, are not necessarily true. They are constructed, and culture is constructed in many ways. It also links to biology in other ways. So it's it's kind of both, right? It's it's kind of it's complex. You know, you see similarities in cultures all around the world. So it's not just that it's, it's not purely constructed. There's nothing is purely anything ever. <laughs> it's just not so good sense making rule. Uh, or, and even that is not purely true all the time. So it's just kind of an infinite uh, regression. But um, so the idea that y- you, we need to deconstruct those grand narratives is a really important one. The problem is if you don't have anything to deconstruct into, if you jump off the building and you don't have a foundation, which some early postmodern theorists called the sublime, which is what, which is the kind of the point at which the language games fail and at which point you're just in awe. And the sublime was what the romantic poets who tended to be 
um, philosophical idealists in, in, the, in the sense of seeing consciousness and mind as the foundation of reality, they would go to like um, the Alps or once that wasn't safe, the Lake District and, you know, connect with nature in a way that was, again, something so far beyond their individual ego and so vast that whatever egoic narrative mind games that they were playing was revealed to just be completely meh, pointless, silly little tangles of, of a human being. And the sublime was um, is the point at which language fails and that you just can't say anything. You're just in awe. Mm. So, and this is, um, I studied postmodernism a lot in university and I read a quote by Lyotard, who was one of the first French post-structuralist kind of theorist or led that way. And I've never been able to find the quote since after searching so <laughs> intensely for it, which is a, a real source of frustration for me, but I'm absolutely positive or no, I'm not absolutely positive. I'm 80% positive. He said, this, <laughs> which was that postmodernism without the sublime will lead to madness. You can't have it without the sublime. And he was like, you can't get, you can't do away with the foundational reality, which is more than language and more than identity and more than that narrative if you're going to deconstruct. Now, if you do have that, then you can deconstruct. And a lot of shamanic traditions do have that. They have a foundational connection to the land and to reality and to the cosmos built in. And the experience that shamans go through is incredibly deconstructive. And they also play the role of being able to see through the social game to be like, well, that's just made up. It's bullshit, <laughs> right? It's a, it's a made up tangle. And because they can see that deconstruction, they can then intervene and they can provide advice and they can heal, etc. So it's actually post-modernity, if you combine it with a foundation of reality, it's fantastic. But we haven't and we don't. And instead, we have post-modernity combined with the scientific materialism that I mentioned earlier, which is just a recipe for a meaning crisis. Because it's like, well, there's we're going to deconstruct everything, but we have nothing to deconstruct it into. So good luck. And so we just get this complete like madness of a post-truth world which of course can be weaponized. Trump weaponized it. Um, uh, governments all around the world weaponize it for, for misinformation campaigns and disinformation campaigns. It's basically becomes an all out narrative warfare for domination, but it's a total war. It never ends. It never ends. And so that, in my view, that can't continue. That, that's, that's, that has to stop. Like that, there's no way we can really, imagine you're trying to figure out something. I mean, we all have this experience trying to figure out um, uh, climate science. I want to know whether what uh, different climate bodies are saying, how accurate is it? You know, are they overblowing things? Are they not overblowing it? I'm going to wade into an internet and an information sphere, which has the information, has all the information I need, but all the information weaponized and all the information is part of someone's narrative game, including the scientific institutions who have funding from different places. So there's a complete chaos it's complete chaos what am i to do how am i possibly meant to do that so not only do i have to be discerning and do my own uh research but i also do have to outsource my sense making to people who have studied this their whole lives so then i have to choose well which of those people are have integrity and can i trust so it's a lot for any of us to to do that um it's doable and we have to find some way to do it, but we also, I think, need to change the actual, um, the actual social networks and, and the, the way that um, the incentive structures are set up in media to begin with. So um, 
yeah, it, it's a big topic. <laughs> I hope I did a little bit of justice in trying to answer it. But that's kind of that. Yeah, I would say that the long and short of it is that the postmodern, the postmodern condition leads to information chaos. Mm. Uh, it's really, I mean, I really appreciate you sharing that perspective because we've been unraveling the kind of cultural history from you know, traditionalism to modernity to post-modernity. We had several guests on trying to unravel this thing. And I think for the first time, I've kind of got it in the sense of why it's a sense-making challenge. And I think combine that with, as you mentioned, the lack of trust in institutions. And if that's so important in the West, then what we've witnessed over the last couple of years is that lack of, that, that trust has been broken quite significantly, whether it's political institutions, media institutions, educational, academic institutions, and that's going to have a massive ramification. And I'm with you on the need to to, to reform uh, those institutions to restore trust. We've got the meaning crisis. The information architecture itself and the way it's set up is is not set up for truth. Um, it, it's it's you've got the behavioural science. We've got deliberate propaganda. We've got manipulation. We've got disinformation. We've got censorship. Um, but even searching for information, I mean, this is a, this is ridiculous. But if you go in, if you go onto Google and you type in the universe into Google, and you at the bottom when it shows you how many search results, it will tell you there's something like 99. You know, there's there's, there's 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 millions of search results quite clearly. Um, but if you click the buttons at the bottom and you go as far as you can to the last page of Google results, it only goes something like 44 pages, which is I think it's around 400 results. So you wrote. In a, in a subject as vast as the universe, there's only something like 400 total results that you can actually access from a Google search. Now, when someone shared this with me, I was like, are you, are you pointing at some conspiracy around the reality of new, the universe and how Google is trying to shape? And they were like, no, it's just the way I wanted to point out how information is, is selected by Google, because you can type in the Simpsons and the same thing happens. It will give you something like 400 results. But how does... Google determine what the most four, top 400 results are going to be for any given subject. And, and you have that algorithmic, uh, you know, which is problem. And, you know, this grand skepticism now around cancel culture. You mentioned about Twitter having its own set of values. You know, it's, it, this to me does feel like a war on sense making. It's, 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 it's grand narratives playing out through social channels, which amplify all of the things that we've just talked about, reinforce them. And I also listened to an interesting audio book the other day that talked about how journalism has become journalism of outrage. Um, but bizarrely, it has a psychological benefit to people because what it does is it creates a psychological dissociation with the problem. And it actually gives people a sense of uh, psychological safety by having a sense of a, an outside adversary. So having externalizing a problem, someone else is at fault, whether it's left or right, it's COVID or it's climate change, the, the externalization of the problem itself, but then the outrage caused by the journalism is actually a way of creating psychological safety for the individual, which is just mind blowing because that is so contrary to, uh, I think that was in a book called Them. I'll, I'll, I'll look it up. It's, it's, it's about the idea of us and them. I'll, I'll, I'll reference it in the notes. But to me, all of these things lead to a point where sense-making itself becomes incredibly complex because even if you've lost trust in it, I'd like to touch on this, if you've lost trust in the media institutions, you're then presented with this information, information ecology of independent media uh, where the discernment, you know, we, we become the guardians of truth. The dis we, we have to be guardians of our own discernment. 
uh, and we may not have the background. And as you said, with, let's take climate as an example, or COVID or any of these things, geopolitics, unless you're a historian or a scientist or you have a background domain expertise in any of these given subjects, you're absolutely right. You have to try and choose your sources. But how do you do that? How do you do that? And then how, once you've even selected those stories, those sources, are they just confirmation bias from your existing worldview, meeting your own values? How do you then actually get to a point where you find some semblance of truth? And then uh, to your previous point about the sublime part of me, this thing's just, do I just want to detach from all of this and just go in pursuit of the sublime and just live a good life? <laughs> you know, I'm constantly living in that yin and yang of, I want to understand, my brain wants to understand the complexity. Like I, 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 cert, I yearn for truth and I want to find it, but the, all of the things I've talked about make it incredibly hard. Yeah, at the same time, I just want that simplicity of just like awe. And when you say awe, I just think of like Jason Silver and his, you know, rants. <laughs> you know, it's, it's like, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, this really touches on something deep I think that I think about a lot, um, which is, you know, Okay, in one, there's one way of stepping aside or stepping back into the sublime, which is a sort of avoidance. But there's another way that can be a renewal in a way. Like, and you know, this this actually like takes us to to the roots of Western philosophy, um, which we think of through um, Socrates, Plato, Aristotle, and beyond as a sort of um, pursuit of reason in a lot of ways right and, and and having a sort of like um a realm of sort of I ideas that and, and and sort of mathematics and 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 rationality existing as as these sort of um transcendent thing that we can bring into the world to make it make sense now one of my favorite uh thinkers and writers is um a classical scholar called peter kingsley um who, who i actually think is one of the most important living thinkers at the moment um and one of the only people who haven't managed to get for rebelism is he doesn't do interviews, um, which uh, makes me want to speak to him all the more. But <laughs> he, uh, he is a very well-respected scholar of the pre-Socratic philosophers, uh, Parmenides and Empedocles. And Parmenides is known as the father of logic and reason. And Kingsley's argument is that he was basically, well, he uses the term murdered. Of course, they were hundreds of years after him, but he was saying... Sort of Plato in particular, base twisted around what they said and, and made it fit into this kind of emerging rationality that was coming around. But Parmenides um, is known as the father of logic because he received logic in a in a kind of shamanic dream from a goddess, goddess of the underworld, and she effectively tells him that like human beings are completely tangled in their own yeah, language games. You know everything you just outlined in the kind of the, the sense making crisis you know that is a really nice collective description of the tangles we get ourselves in where we just get so disconnected from a sense of reality and she tells them basically none of you mortals have the metis which is like um this greek word which means cunning and wherewithal and like metis is what like a, a potter has to make a pot or a charioteer has to be able to be sort of have the skill and also like wherewithal is, is a word we don't use in English much, but it's like a good translation. And so like discernment is another way you could say it. And so the goddess is like, you're all completely tangled in your own mad reality tunnels at all times. And you, and also that we're all trying to 
square our perception of the world with an idea of the world as it truly is. Is the way I'm seeing things how the world really is? That's the ultimate sense-making question, right? And in Parmenides' view, uh, well, he was an idealist, really. So he was like, no, there is a there is a firm, unchanging reality, and your perception of it is it, in that sense, right? Um, but one one of the interesting things is that for him, logic wasn't really about this kind of um, process of um, coming to a kind of uh, cohesive conclusion based on cause and effect. Logic was anything that would get us out of that tangle of mm. our own reality tunnel into seeing reality as it actually is, into actually kind of perceiving. And for him and Empedocles who came after him, the only way to do that was to step aside. So back to your point, it was that the harder you try to do that, so the harder you try to make sense of everything in a particular way, um, you know, kind of logic and reason, the more confused you get. Oh, this is why like a lot of, uh, you know, people who research like reality tunnels online, uh, you know, point out like people who get really stuck in a particularly very narrow frame, they tend to be the smartest people, you know, intellectually, they're very, very intelligent because of course, like, you know, you can argue, so we can all argue ourselves into anything. And so for them, and this is kind of the point I'm trying to make with this is that letting go and really recognizing that we don't know and connecting with a deeper level of reality is the ultimate sense making because then things field it's just very similar to what buddha said it's like you're we're all trapped in maya we're all trapped in this complete fantasy that our minds are creating and the more you try and think your way out of the fantasy the deeper the fantasy gets so instead of thinking your way out of it learn how to stop thinking and pay attention and then you'll see reality more clearly and I think that's the foundation. What I love about Kingsley's work is that it points to the idea that seeing through the illusion of reality is foundational to Western philosophy. Like it is our, it is if you're in the West, part of our philosophical birthright, just as it is for in the East. It's a global birthright that this idea that reality as we see it isn't as it appears to us, and that we are constantly being deceived by ourselves and by other people as well. Now that doesn't mean there's like a global vast conspiracy. It means that, you know, if we looked at it in cognitive terms, it means that like, like I said earlier, the very same machinery that makes you smart makes us stupid. So we're, we're kind of tangled. And so we, we have to learn how to break frame. We have to learn how to let go of the old frame and really open ourselves to a new one. And that's why, mindfulness, inquiry, collective kind of dialogue practices, um, obviously psychedelics, but we don't use those in Sense Making 101, um, but, you know, very well held, um, reverential uh, and safely done use of psychedelics. We know from all the research and just anecdotally over the last 20, 30,000 years helps us break out of our frames, um, you know, getting high, Rebecca points out actually, the word getting high, zooming out and seeing things from a higher perspective, right? So it's it's kind of in the language. So I've now forgotten your original question. Oh no. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, so the idea of stepping aside is actually one to really inquire into. Like what does it actually mean when we stop trying to solve the problem? And we stop and we recognize like like you just did, like 
I, I think that's a really that's actually a place we start very often in, in like looking at sense making is like we have to start from the point of like it's a complete tangle <laughs> you know like yeah. instead of trying to sort of go in and untangle different bits of it there is something really important about taking a collective step back and going okay this is such a tangle that we need to think completely outside the box again that's just another way of saying think outside of the existing frames we have because uh sometimes things get so tangled that you can't untangle them and i think that's mm. our information landscape may be something like that where we need a really radical reevaluation of uh not institutions but the value structures under them and the inception of reality underneath those value structures so it's a whole massive process that no individual or even group is going to like be able to do that it's part of the system itself perhaps I, I don't know this is a part where i really this is the edge of my sense making i'm like can we change systems or do systems change themselves you know it's a really interesting theory of change it's like can you change the world can good sense making change the world probably makes it much better and it's a really important endeavor but also it might be that it just it contributes to something in a complex system that then where something new emerges and whatever that might be um we don't know, but it happens, you know, um, we're living through the enlightenment right now. We're living through the, the remnants of what happened 400 years ago, where we had an awakening that helped us get out of the yoke of the, of the church. Thank God. Right. That was really quite constrictive. We weren't able to think outside of their frame. And then we were now we're constricted by the enlightenment. Now we're stuck in enlightenment thinking in particular day, particularly Descartes thinking where mind and matter are separate. Um, so now we need to break out of that somehow. And um, God knows how that'll happen. But, but I think part of part of engaging in sense making and being interested in this is inquiring into, well, what's next? What's next? And that, that's partly why it's so exciting. I think that's partly why I love it so much, because it's like we don't know. And if we did, it would be boring and we would probably be wrong. As well. Yes. Oh, so much in this piece. This is so rich. Uh, so. Um... Yeah, I want to kind of just layer in some of my own thinking on this. So your point around, it, it, again, you made a reference to this earlier, how we use these kind of metaphors to describe, you know, for our language out of the box. I, I think a lot of us, myself included, are in that tanglement right now, trying, and I, I can see, quite frankly, through my own mind, through my own curiosity, how I get so tunnel vision on trying to figure something out, trying to solve it, trying to understand it. And... I'll go deep onto one tunnel, but then I'll zoom out and go, okay, now I see the interconnections and I'll go find that. And it's just this ever expanding map that never ever gets any smaller. My team know fully full well how much I want to explore the whole map, but it's it's almost like you'll go 360 seeing the whole map and you're back to where you started. It's like getting lost in the forest. You're like, I've been looking everywhere and I'm, I'm exactly where I started. Um, and you can kind of see how some of the intellectuals of the, of the past who have gone mad like you can see why people go mad trying to solve the world and i do wonder i do wonder if the likes of beethoven and da vinci they turn to music and art as their way of finding that divinity the sacred in order to escape i i get a sense that they had those kind of minds from what i've read about both of those individuals and similar individuals and whether that outlet created something that enabled them to transcend their uh, the inner workings of their own mind. I do, I'm very curious about exploring that further. But uh, the idea of going beyond ourselves to find this new thing, I think is so, it's so, so important. And 
I was reading about the French Revolution and there was this, a lot of, there's lots of mechanics around the French Revolution, but, but there was, there's a piece that I think is really interesting is the emergence of the public sphere, the cafe culture that uh, 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 emerged where people would meet to have these kind of shared sense-making experiences outside of the grand narratives of the predicament that they found themselves in. And it started as this small, very much backroom start of conversation, but it expanded and expanded and expanded to be this whole culture. And through this culture, it actually broke free of the kind of constraints of the, the kind of existing stories that the culture was speaking into. And obviously, that's a, there's a lot more to the French Revolution than simply um, challenging the existing storylines. But I think there is something to that. And it feels like now disconnecting from grand narratives, disconnecting from the social media systems that kind of keep us constrained in that entanglement, ever lost, um, to find, and I can see why you've written a book on psychedelics, you know, based on everything you've just shared, because I think that is an interesting tool set that can help us go beyond our current thinking. In fact, I captured this, I'm, I'm going to read it, because I captured this quote this morning from Terence McKenna. Psychedelics are illegal, not because a loving government is concerned that you may jump out of a third story window, Psychedelics are illegal because they dissolve opinion structures and culturally laid down models of behavior and information processing. They open you up to possibility that everything you know is wrong. And to me, that is like the, the removal of the veil, the illusion of reality dissolving. Uh, and I think in that there is some magic that will enable us to see something that, that, that perhaps has always been there or to 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 to, to, to create something that's off the page of life as we know it and uh and i appreciate the uh psychedelics are one route to having that experience and there are many others um and, and you know as we've gone through this conversation we've, we've laid down some of the, i mean i've felt it viscerally as we're talking about some of these challenges loss of trust in institutions the information ecosystem the way that the social media systems are coming and i'm sure our listeners our viewers are thinking goodness me what are we going to do like how on earth are we going to break through from all of this and you know, psychedelics may be one path, but I, I really want to talk about what you created with the sense making course at Rebel Wisdom. I had a great experience going through the eight week path. Um, it, it thoroughly challenged my own paradigms. It connected me some amazing thinkers that, that, that enriched my kind of worldview no end. And it's, to be fair, it's created new rabbit holes of exploration that, <laughs> that I'm still going down. Um, but uh, to me, within the, the, the nature of the course and the way it's constructed, it offers some mindset tools and practices that can help us to navigate some of these challenges that we've talked about. We'll, we'll have you back on when your book comes out to explore psychedelics in more depth. Um, uh, but uh, could you tell us a little bit about how the course has been designed in order to tackle some of these big challenges that we've discussed? Yeah, definitely. And, and you know, I'm... Uh, always really thrilled to hear uh, when people have um, uh, a really deep experience and, and I'm glad there's more rabbit holes to go down now. That's, that's good because that makes me think <laughs> it's a wider frame. Um, and yeah, so the, the course is structured um, kind of, it, it's designed to work from the inside out in the sense that we start with um, practices that we found particularly useful for um, maintaining our uh, sort of nervous system while talking about different topics or, or kind of inquiring into different cultural or social issues. So, um, you know, I have a background as a meditation teacher. And so I designed a, 
the meditation for the course, um, which was actually a meditation I started doing. Uh, it's called the sovereignty meditation, um, which which combines some some simple breath work with concentration meditation, which is really a process of zooming in and really helps us to focus in on things. And then mindfulness, which is a process of zooming out and paying attention. And then the final stage is um, uh, inquiry. So if, you know, if possible, we do it in a group uh, or if not, we just journal just to kind of explain, explore through language and almost reframing the role of language to be instead of something that we're using to convince other people of something or just express a particular idea. It's kind of language being used as a form of meditation. So, you know, journaling, a lot of people might have done before, but um, there's a process of that. And inquiry is another really core practice that we use, which starts to move towards a little bit the um, the other practices we use, which are kind of relational because we, we look a lot at how to make sense together. Um, but early in the course, we have John Verveke, um, who's exploring the cognitive science behind these practices, why they're so important, why they're useful, um, talking about the difference between knowledge and wisdom, talking about um, the meaning crisis, which, which I touched on earlier, talking about how our cognition actually works to give a kind of grounding of that. Um, we have a session on presence that I run, which is really looking at, okay, how do we wake up to what's around us? How do we wake up to our senses? What are the skills that we need to do that? Um, a kind of reframing meditation from just either a personal growth or, or firstly spiritual or personal growth pursuit to recognizing that both of those are vital, but also understanding that meditation is really core skill. Mindfulness and awareness and concentration are really essential for our discernment in the information landscape. We need them. We need them. And we need them to be able to connect with each other properly. Um, then we explore the shadow which is a really interesting and important concept from Jungian psychology, which is all those aspects of ourselves that we reject and deny and then subsequently project onto other people. Like, for example, if you grew up in a household where anger was not okay and everyone had to be nicey-nicey all the time, anger is really frowned upon. Anytime you felt angry, which is a very important emotion, you might have suppressed it. And then later on, what can come out in all, all sorts of different ways it might be passive aggressive. It might be that you just explode through road rage. And also very often, Jung pointed out, gets projected onto other people so that other, everyone else seems angry. Or particularly, usually there's a hook to hang it on. If someone is angry, then it's like, oh, my God, they're the devil. And so we see this playing out in, in the culture wars all the time. It, it's the basically the scapegoating dynamic of, I'm right or we're right. And they are not only wrong, they are contemptuous and awful. They're, mm. as Hillary Clinton put it, deplorables, right? So <laughs> that energy is shadow energy. That is, they represent something in myself that I can't connect to. And once we do connect to it, and there's processes for this that Diane Usher Hamilton takes us through. She's a um, brilliant mediator and also a Zen Zen monk. Um, not monk, really, but Zen. I'd say like she's like a Zen master. Um, and she uses a process all three, two, one, which is really useful that we, we, um, go through, um, that you can kind of use day-to-day -day life. Um, David Fuller, the other founder of Rebel Wisdom does a course on, uh, does a session on media and how do we actually like, how do we look at the media landscape? How do we make sense of the media landscape? What are some of the things we need to do? You know, we talked earlier about, um, how on earth do we do our own research? How do we figure out which sources to trust? You know, David's got... Um, you know, two decades of experience as a journalist. And so that's really a process, you know, journalism is kind of a process of that in many ways. So we, we explore that. 
and we explore a lot of models related to that. And we have in this one, in this course coming up, we have Jonathan Rousen, who's a chess grandmaster and philosopher, who's uh, doing a session around the meta crisis. So again, we're zooming out. So this, we started internal, then we went to second person connecting with each other. And then towards the end, we're looking at what's the bigger picture? What are, what's, what's the meta crisis? How do we navigate the meta crisis? How do we all make sense together while recognizing that we're basically within a much bigger system? And, you know, none of us orchestrated the invasion of Ukraine, but we're all having to deal with it this winter, right? So that's mm -hmm. yeah. immediately changes. And how do we, and how do we try and make sense of that? How, like, what, how do we um, make sense of things that are so big that they're, they're, they're kind of the water you swim in? So we kind of look at that. And then we bring it all together. And we have a, an amazing facilitator called Sarah Ness, who is a pioneer in this um, in an area called authentic relating, which is really um, that's how we're finishing is, is how do we make sense together? Like how, what, taking everything we've learned, what does it mean to actually create? You know, you talked about sort of France during the Enlightenment or early Enlightenment. That's the energy we want to really leave people with and, and uh, people to go on with is, is this energy of, um, yeah, let's get together and find new ways to have these conversations. Um, and that's, you know, generally what people, you know, express from from the course. We have about 1,400 people have done it now. We've got a 90% satisfaction rating consistently. Uh, we also have a, a, a couple who met in their pod and <laughs> um, got married and then are having a baby, which is amazing, across the world, Venezuela wow. and I think Holland. And they met in Jamaica. And now they're living uh, somewhere, and um, yeah, I mean, it's, it's really cool. So that's that's a just a lovely coincidence. We uh, we can't guarantee that you're gonna uh, <laughs> get married and have a baby. Uh, uh, you might not want to either, but no. So it's just really good. I think that's just a that's kind of a testament to um, the level of connection because you work in pods of four people throughout. So we have the live sessions, and then we have pod meetings that you arrange yourself, and then we have a workbook which is. I, I genuinely think could be a nonfiction book in its own right. It's, you know, well, it's like 120 pages long altogether. It comes out week by week for each of them. And then lots of different films and exercises. So um, it's quite a full course and people actually you have access to it forever. So people come back to it consistently and I kind of revisit a particular module, rewatch the film, go through the workbook again. Um, so, yeah, it's something we're really proud of. It's really it's, it's turned into much more of a process than just a course. You know, when we launched an online course, we'd never done one before. And we were like, we just built it like we built a retreat because we did uh, in-person retreats as in our DNA. And I think that um, I think that helped it a lot in a sense because it's, um, yeah, I, I'm much more interested in doing a kind of shared journey than than just a kind of, oh, we're all back to school now and we're going to learn some stuff. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I think it's great to hear the uh, love story. But I think the, import, the important point about the relationships actually was you know, people always talk about being amongst like-minded people as like a desirable piece. And we dissected this at one of our uh, retreat style events recently. And what we found actually was, though the desire to be around like-minded people was there, it was actually, it was actually a desire to be around open-minded people. And, and, and then below that, it was like open-hearted and more broadly, it was being around open people who are just open to experience as well as open to ideas. And, was I met plenty of people who were like-minded during the course of the sense making. What I appreciated the most was actually everyone had made the commitment there to be there in order to, for different reasons, their own motivations, 
but underpinning all of it was a desire to improve their own ability to make sense of the world. Yeah. And what that what that led to was some really interesting shared experiences. And as I mentioned during the course of this conversation, cross cultures, cross countries uh, around different issues. And that was so enriching because it, it highlighted where some of my blind spots were. Uh, the practical work around the lenses certainly did that. But then in, in the interaction itself helped me to realize how limited our view of the world can be when we, uh, if we fail to expand our shared sense-making experiences. And it was a really, I think the container that was created for that was possibly some of the most powerful parts of the course because it, it it's an embodiment of the process. So you learn, you learn the material and the activities, you practice that in real time in, in your pods, but then you're going through it as a shared experience. And many of the people that I had the opportunity of meeting on the course I've stayed into contact with, we've all said that we would like to kind of regroup in a, in, in a, in a certain period of time to actually see how things have evolved for each of us. And to me, it's one of those courses where like, there's, certain, there's certain transformational events I've been to over and over again at different points in my life because I've changed, my life has moved on, and therefore the material at the event relates to me differently. And I feel that that would be the case with Sensemaking 101. However, <laughs> it is your, it's your last last run. It's, uh, you know, it is. As we mentioned in the introduction, your Rebel Wisdom, uh, Ali and David are going separate directions on new projects. So this this feels like a unique opportunity for people to take part in this experience at this time. And I know you're discussing possible ways for it to continue, but uh, I think in its current form, it sounds like this is a great opportunity for people to to be part of the last, certainly last Rebel Wisdom version yeah. of the course. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's it's a, it's the eighth one we've done, and uh, nice round number. Also, you know, bittersweet, but um, it, there's also a kind of energy and excitement around it as well. I, you know, and also kind of. Yeah, as because of that, we're also bringing in a few bonus, some bonus content because we've had different facilitators throughout, you know, the last um, three years almost. Um, so we're going to bring in some of the best of the best of uh, kind of make make videos available of that just to um, uh, tap into what has been like uh, an enormous wellspring of insight. I feel really lucky always kind of hosting and listening to these brilliant um both brilliant thinkers and then brilliant facilitators and very most of the time both you know um it's been a real joy for me to learn um i feel very privileged in that like it's just been really like um yeah it, it's it's really changed how i see sense making you know had we recorded this three years ago my understanding of sense making would have been very very different you know and so it's been a really wonderful process to you know be with people like you said all around the world um and just seeing the level of uh care and insight and kind of shared yeah that's the thing you're absolutely right i think that's part of the magic is that everyone's different but there's a shared interest always you know by virtue of having signed up for the course of improving sense making so there's a real level of openness i would say in in, in everyone who comes yes now um so for people to sign up they can sign up now it's starting on the 14th of september is that right it's, yeah uh... wednesday it runs wednesday evenings at um eight uk time uh and that's exactly it yeah it's um there's the website yeah ele elevate uh people in the elevate network get 10 percent off as well with the code the discount code which is case sensitive um very important <laughs> so um yeah yeah and um i'm 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 really looking forward to it. it's about a week well about a less less than a week away now just under a week away so um we're getting everything ready and yeah looking forward to, to kicking off 
Yeah, well, I'm certainly as as a, someone who's been through the course, happy to endorse the course. It's been uh, it's, it's well, given what I do here on the podcast, it's it's to me it's an essential part of my toolkit. So, I'd like to invite invite members of our audience, our network, to 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 join the course. You can go to rebelwisdom.co.uk forward slash sense making one hundred and one. Um, the team, uh, Ali and the team have kindly created a 10% discount for us, which you can use the code elevate underscore 10. As, as Ali mentioned, it's case sensitive. If you're on our mailing list, you'll certainly get a copy. Uh, you'll get the links and the code. Um, so I enjoy, uh, encourage you to, to, to check out your emails if you're, if you're watching this now for, for, for the links. Um, but also we are running a taster session on Monday, coming up this Monday with Ali, um, a sense making taster event where some of the practices that um, you've discussed to, uh, in this episode, we'll, we'll have the opportunity to actually sample uh, as well as ask your questions about the course, about sense-making more broadly, perhaps some of the conversations that we've had here today. So uh, you can also register for that event at danastongregory.com forward slash sense-making. That's going to be on Monday night at 8 p.m. Uh, where you'll uh, be able to uh, meet with Ali personally and and, and uh, take part in some of the types of experiences that uh, the team will be taking you through on the sense making course. So it's uh, my invitation for you to join us on Monday. Uh, and then the course uh, will begin on Wednesday. And again, that's rebelwisdom.co.uk forward slash sense making 101. Uh, be sure to use the discount code to take advantage of the kind offer um, from Ali and the team. Um, so it's an exciting time. Uh, it's an exciting time to be alive. I think, you know, the conversation towards the latter part of this to me is this it's given me lots of food for thought about how I need to sometimes disc. I think I need to disconnect a lot more from, from, from some of the things I'm just going deep on. I mean, even on a practical note, you know, it's when you go on holiday, some of your best ideas come to you or, yeah. or in the, sh the shower, there's a good reason for that because you're yeah. detached from the material. Yeah. Uh, um, and uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's been a really wonderful exploration. Um, you know, so much more uh, rich than just a conversation about what is sense making. There's, there's, there's been a lot that we've covered in the course of today's, session uh and, and of course with a subject like this a lot more to cover so it's been a it's been a pleasure having this conversation with you um i'm very interested to to watch the progress of your book and look forward to 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 learning more about the material um when it comes out next year is next year it's planned for yeah june 13th is a publication date so um I'll, yeah so a little little while yet um but yeah next year Yes. And then just a little taster of what you're going to be doing between now and then once you, if you can, what are you going to be doing over the coming months? Yeah. Um, well, we're, we're wrapping up Rebelism on the 5th of November uh, with a, with a final event in London. Um, and then uh, I am uh, developing, I'm, I'm doing a lot of work in the psychedelic space. Um, I'm going to continue writing as well uh, pieces on, on Substack um, and uh yeah, I have, a, I have a major project that's in the works, uh, which I am not quite talking about publicly yet. But uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, but so I've got uh, I've got that as well, and then and then kind of preparing uh, for um, preparing for the book coming out next year as well. Yeah, amazing, amazing. Well, thank you so much for this uh, powerful conversation here on the Elevate Podcast, um, and again for for our audience watching at home, come and check us out on Monday for the taster session, and again the course. Uh, begins on Wednesday next week that you can that you can join us on. So thank you again. Uh, please do share this episode. It's been a wonderful conversation. And uh, together we can make better sense of the world around us. 
Amazing. Thanks, Dan. And thanks, thanks everyone for, uh, for watching and listening. It's been a real, uh, I've really enjoyed this. Thank you for watching today's episode of the Elevate podcast with me, Dallas and Gregory, and our special guest today, Alexander Biner. What a fascinating discussion. Sense-making for me is one of the most powerful tools in the work that we do here at Elevate. I'm obsessed with looking for different ways to improve my ability to make sense of the world, including uh, relating with others. And uh, a lot of the tools that I've been able to put into practice over the last few months to understand the bigger picture and the complexities facing the world uh, are as a direct result of some of the practices that I learned on the Rebel Wisdom Sensemaking course. And as we mentioned at the end of the broadcast, this is the final opportunity to join the Rebel Wisdom Sensemaking course. Uh, We've arranged a special 10% discount for our members. Uh, You can go to rebelwisdom.co.uk forward slash sensemaking101 and use the code elevate underscore 10. That's capital E, uh, elevate underscore 10 uh, to get 10% off uh, the uh, event price. Uh, It's a seven-week program. It's a a deeply enriching um, set of experiences. You'll meet a lot of fascinating people along the way. And, uh, well, no better time than now to make better sense of the world. And uh, the Rebel Wisdom course will provide you with a set of tools and practices and experiences to help you, uh, like myself, to make better sense of the world. Uh, If you'd like more information about the course, of course, you can go to the course website, Or you can come and join us inside the Elevate Network on Monday night where Ali returns to give us a taster session of some of the practices and experiences that you can expect on the course. You'll have a a live taste of some of the the types of experiences that you can uh, have a deeper possibility of exploring within the course. Uh, So you can visit us on Monday inside the Elevate Network, either at weareelevate.org if you're an existing supporter, or you can go to dallastongregory.com forward slash sensemaking to get all the details and grab your ticket for Monday's Taster event. Mm-hmm.